0: I am happy to introduce Jason Stanley to all of you. Jason is this Jacob Urowski, professor of philosophy at Yale University. Uh, before coming to Yale in 2013, he was a distinguished professor in the Department of Philosophy at Rutgers University. He has written several books including How Propaganda Works, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Philosophy. Tonight he will be talking about his new book How Fascism Works. In this clear and direct primer, Stanley draws on a wide range of history, philosophy, sociology, and critical race theory to define fascism, explain its mechanisms, and help people identify its red flags. At at its most basic level, fascism is simply a movement that achieves power by dividing a population. A country can have fascist strains without actually being fascistic, Stanley says and he identifies myriad seeds of authoritarianism in US history from the Confederacy and the Jim Crow South, which inspired Hitler, to the more recent birther movement and the rise of Trump. More generally, he cites 10 hallmarks of fascism, such as the mythic past, propaganda, anti-intellectualism, and unreality. On the rise today, these must be resisted if we are to stop fascism from gaining hold here. In their review of the book, Publishers Weekly says that Stanley is an er erudite guide and this convincing analysis of forces at work in present day politics is accessible to experts and novices alike. Everyone, let us please welcome Jason Stanley. So, uh,
1: thanks. Uh, So I thought I would uh, say a little bit about why another Crisis of Democracy book because I'm sure that a lot of you have been at talks with a few Crisis of Democracy books. So uh, so, uh, so, why another Crisis of Democracy books? Well, uh, Crisis of Democracy books work by act in the recent, the recent group, many of, of which are written by friends of mine, uh, are written as if we had this healthy and thriving liberal democracy. And then Russia came. <laughs> And boy, it really threw us off our game. Uh, and, this, uh, and they're written as if fascism is something completely foreign to the United States, as if it's a European thing. It's clearly like an Italian word. Uh, and so it has no business being in our wonderful, good old boy, United States. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, I wrote my book, Because I think this is too complacent. The whole crisis, I I agree with a lot of the critics, like Jedediah Purdy of the crisis of democracy literature. It's a real failing of that literature because we're not going to be able to fight the problematic forces in our country unless we recognize them as native-born. I mean, not really native born, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, So we're not going to recognize the problems that we face unless we see that, for instance, in Mein Kampf, uh, Hitler praises the United States as a model of the nation state, of the national state that he is there, there trying to set up. He praises our 1924 Immigration Act. So just recently, uh, we've we've had a move to constrain immigration to just be very strict about the health of immigrants coming. That's very reminiscent of the 1924 Immigration Act, in particular the 1920s when eugenics and sort of there was a huge focus on the health of the, uh, when President Trump talked about People from shithole countries coming, and how you know how come we don't get people from Norway anymore? Well, that is right out of 1924. Hitler in Mein Kampf, in the second book, Hitler's second book, uh, he praises the United States for restricting uh, for restricting immigration to immig- to people who to to Europe select and to people who are uh, healthy, uh, uh, strong from a health point of view. And we hear those echoes all around us. Um, So unless we see our own complicity in European fascism, we're never going to be able to truly deal with our susceptibility because our susceptibility links to who we are as Americans. I mean, as there's a book in the back, not to sell my colleagues books, but there's a book in, by Jim Whitman in the back called Hitler's American Model, which is about the Nuremberg laws. And it's about how the lawyers, the Nuremberg lawyers, came to the United States to study our anti-miscegenation laws. And they were like, and they're, of course, it's very fascist because fascism is about purity to, you know, the first laws you have to have are ones restricting intermarriage, right? Uh, so, uh, so the Nuremberg laws, uh, they came over here, they studied our, our laws, they were, like, they were trying to figure out who is a Jew in, in Germany. And then they looked at our laws and they're like, okay, that one drop thing, that's kind of crazy. Uh, let's go with one-eighth, that's a little bit more. So we were viewed as very radical. Our anti-miscegenation laws were considered radical by the National Socialist Jurists. That's what Jim Whitman's book is about. Um, we were uh, we were considered to be an extreme state. Uh, th- there's a book by by Nancy McLean, uh, also these parallels between European fascism and what's happening in the United States. Of course, they have not gone unmentioned. Uh, Nancy McLean's 1994 book, uh, Behind the Mask of Chivalry, is about the Ku Klux Klan, and she remarks... Uh, she talks about how the Ku Klux Klan uh, is about protecting the traditional family, hearkening back to a great america but and warning of the danger and warning of the dangers of racial of of, of black people inter- uh, you know uh, black rapists, supposed black rapists and Jews and communists and this of course, is a politics that straightforwardly goes over to to Germany in my book, I talk about uh, the campaign that that uh, in the early twenties, to raise panic about uh, Senegalese soldiers in the Rhineland, there was a huge propaganda campaign. Weirdly enough, it was before Facebook too. Um, and uh, but it was a huge propaganda campaign, so much so that I think there there was a rally of ten thousand people uh, 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 to uh, in Ma- Madison Square Garden about the black horror on the Rhine. You know, uh, it was it was a German propaganda campaign to to say you know the jew hitler says i have a quote from hitler there saying the jews have brought you know black soldiers to rape our women on the rhineland and so was, uh so so this politics of panic and fear uh the racial politics of the united states uh this is uh fascism is homegrown uh, now uh why uh, so I, I should address this point immediately that my agent when i first got an agent asked me why a philosopher writing about fascism? You're not a historian. Why a philosopher? So, now, one argument, you know, besides the fact that this sort of erases Hannah Arendt and Adorno and uh, some other people who've written about fascism uh, who are philosophers, do uh, I mean, Du Bois is a philosopher and uh, Du Bois, to, to make this point again about the United States, in the beginning of Black Reconstruction, Du Bois says, Du Bois tells this little vignette. He's like, the world was wonderful. The uh, g- God made the world was wonderful. There was peace and harmony. And then he threw a black man into the midst, and fascism broke out. So, uh, so uh, one more vignette about the connection. Will Rogers, um, Timothy Snyder's brother, is uh, found this for me. Uh, Will Rogers. Will Rogers has a column from 1933 where he says, "I don't. Th- it doesn't look to me that Hitler wants to be." Uh, Mussolini, he doesn't want to be emperor. He wants to be Klegel. It's the KKK he's imitating. So these connections were quite clear at the time. Certainly to Du Bois, everything's clear to Du Bois, most things. Um, so, uh, so, but philosophers, Du Bois of course is a historian, a philosopher. He counts as everything. But historians, uh, I think that. What philosophers do is we make generalizations. We make generalizations that are of course faulty because no generalization is perfect. And of course, you know, uh, Nancy McLean excoriated me uh, saying, well, you know, uh, fas- fascism of course requires panic about communists so you do find this panic about commun- communists in the 20s in in the south but you don't find any communists <laughs> um, so she was pointing that out to me and she's like that's a difference you actually had communists in Germany I'm like yeah that's a difference but uh, so there are these differences there are going to be differences there are differences between uh, in my book I range ex- extremely widely I talk about the uh, Hindutva movement in India. I talk about um, I, if it were written today, I would talk about a topic that I'm being interviewed about every other day. Saro in Brazil. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so I talk about a range of different uh, of different hypernationalist movements, and they are connected. I mean, RSS in India is deeply influenced by uh, Hitler, by actual European fascism uh and and of course modi was originally as a youth uh a member of the rss so uh so the hindutva movement is connect so there are these connections uh but but what we're seeing right now what we're seeing right now is something that requires generalization and a historian you know this project needs to be done in tandem with historians uh But it also needs to be done, I I think that, you know, there's a reason we return to Arendt. There's a reason we return to uh, to Adorno. Uh, They make certain generalizations that help us spot spot what's happening around us. Um, They obscure certain differences, of course, uh, but uh, there are important generalizations. Now, why do we need a book on fascism after Arendt wrote Origins of Totalitarianism? Well, if you go back to the 50s literature, what you'll find is there's two different streams one of, of, of thinking. One stream, like Arendt, theorizes authoritarianism. That's what Arendt does in Origins of Totalitarianism. That's the dominant theme, to theorize authoritarianism. So Arendt goes back and forth between Stalin and Hitler, and she's theorizing them together. And as a result, there is nothing in Origins of Totalitarianism on patriarchy. And you are not talking about fascism unless you're talking about patriarchy. Patriarchy is the very core of fascism. So, uh, so, but, you know, rhetorically, a lot of communist movements, a lot of even authoritarian communist movements are not patriarchal. Um, Communism, when it suppresses liberty, is, uh, is harshly rhetorically egalitarian. Of course, people use that for nefarious purposes and manipulate the ideals of equality. But uh, but 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 Stalin. But what you what you find in in uh, in communist rhetoric is a different structure than what you find in fascist rhetoric. You don't find macho strongmen talking about uh, uh, how the how. I mean, you do to some extent because there's overlaps. I mean, Chavez did do some macho strongman stuff, but. Uh, but you don't find them talking about how you know, women should be at home and uh, and you know, the racial minorities are lazy, uh, you know, uh, and and you don't find them basing an OSTEM distinction on uh, on race, ethnicity, religion, or nationalism. They base it uh, rather on class. And that's rhetorically different. So when you're theorizing, to theorize all authoritarianism together will make you miss very specific threats. I do not think that we face a th- d- despite what you might hear about Hillary Clinton. I do not think we face a threat of encroaching communism. That was a joke. Um, so uh, so uh, so, and it is of course fascist politics to to paint the center left as 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 communists and uh, goebbels says the ordinary burger will not vote for us unless we terrify him that by painting the center left the ordinary center left and the ordinary intellectuals as communists out to out as bolshevik out to come for their property um so goebbels repeatedly recommends painting the ordinary center left party the social democrats um as as bolsheviks and then paints that and and urges not uh, urges Nazi propaganda to urges Nazi propaganda to create fear of the theft of their property to, to address ordinary citizens and say the communists are coming and they're going to take your property and they're hiding under the mask of these bourgeois centrist intellectuals sound familiar uh, so uh, so uh, liberals uh, everyone needs to go read protocols of the elders of zion um, I have it, uh, you know, it's, it's, you hear it all the time now, um, but it's, uh, you know, you'll read it and you'll be like, wow, I, I, I saw that speech. Uh, so uh, you don't need Jews for the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Um, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is about, is about, uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is about uh, liberals, uh, liberalism. Is of course supposed to be a Jewish plot, which I'm happy to take credit, or you know. Uh, but uh, liberal uh, liberalism, and there is Spinoza. So uh, so. Uh, but liberalism is supposed to be a Jewish plot um, to uh, to come to uh, when you when you spread liberalism into people's hearts, then they'll as as the protocol says, then they'll willingly give their power to you. They'll willingly give up their power. Because liberalism has two values: liberty and equality, right? And if everyone is allowed to, to to practice their own traditions and their own ways of being, then every then you know you have to give people space. You have to move the uh, Christmas tree over, or in Israel, I guess the menorah over, uh, and make space for something else. Um, if you equality. Uh, the dominant group will have to, you know, women's equality means that men will have to give up some of their prestige and power. In fascist politics, you represent that as a takeover attempt. In fascist politics, you represent uh, equality as always a hypocritical mask to take over. So feminism, so, so Uh, African-American studies departments, I mean, this wasn't Hitler's example, but African-American studies departments are really attempts to take over and supplant Shakespeare, you know, familiar. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, so this is the protocols. This is the protocols. The protocols is all about how equality is a myth. Political freedom is the expression they use. And that's a myth. And, uh, and people are only ever spread that myth in order to take power for you for, from you, because one group must rule. You know that fascist politics is taking hold when the dominant group feels like the world's greatest victims. Uh, on October 12, 2017, Victor Orban and in the International Conference for the Persecution of Christians in Buda- Budapest said, uh, uh, "You know, there's no doubt." That Christians are the world's most persecuted religion, uh, and this is of course, and 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 you can see. I mean, one thing, one reason, one thing. I said back to Nancy McLean when she challenged me about this, and because if you look at the KKK, there, the, or you look at the right, as I discussed the the origins of the right to work movement, which is now one hears more successful than it was in the forties. uh the origins of the white right to work movement. uh it was there was all this stuff about how. Labor unions were Jewish communist plots. This is another feature uh, of fascism. Um, there, there are certain things that surprised me in my research. This theme again and again of the importance of labor unions, and then you realize later, well, it's obvious. You know, I mean, Martin Niemoller's poem has a line in it. Then they came for the trade unionists. You know, uh, you know. But who would have thought? Like labor unions are always the targets in fascism everywhere in Spain. In Germany, that's why Martin Niemöller lists it along with socialists and Jews, (laughs) Um, you know, trade unionists, because unions are so fascism is an us them distinction that creates a bond between creates an us uh, apart from them based on racial identity or religious identity or ethnic identity and class identity creating an us along class identity lines is the polar opposite. Uh, so in Black Reconstruction, Du Bois is very I mean, the whole story of Black Reconstruction is about how Reconstruction ends because because the uh, wealthy white northern industrialists recognize recognize that the that poor blacks and poor whites in the south are creating a labor move- movement and like, OK, white panter planter class, you're right. That's bad. <laughs> and so then then. You know, it's to break the emerging labor movement that they remove the power of uh, black uh, Southerners to vote. So uh, so labor. So uh, Arendt is very clear about this in origin. So you're reading Du Bois and Arendt together and both of them are talk are, are yelling a, a weapon against fascism is labor unions. And fascists know that. And when you break down labor unions, you break down ways of connecting across race and gender and religion. Uh, and ethnicity, uh, uh, you know, labor unions are about material interests. We all have uh, aging parents, or not so aging parents in my case, and uh, and so uh, so uh, uh, we we all have we all like weekends. I mean, they're disappearing quickly, but they were fun while they lasted. Um, and uh, and we all have those material interests. So that bonds us across race and religions. So you got to smash that uh, if you want to. To make people connect across, uh, make people just connect across their race, and then once you do that, then you can tell them their racial identity is priceless. And this is Du Bois's notion of the psychological wages of whiteness. You know where he says the psychological wages of whiteness are priceless. (laughs) You know that's why the poor whites. I mean, when you read our newspapers and they talk about poor whites and the working class whites, as if these phrases have no American history. Uh, You know, there's a chapter in Black Reconstruction called A Poor White. Um, So so Du Bois' notion of psychological wages of whiteness is essential for thinking about fascism. Uh, uh, Victor Klemper in Language of the Third Reich has a chapter called I Believe in Him. And, uh, And this is, it could be called Psychological Wages of Germanness. And it's it. There's a in the middle of it. He's he's talking about. So I, you always hear to set it up. You always you. I always hear people saying, well, when, when President say President Trump, to take an example. When his supporters don't realize they're not getting the material benefits they expected, they will throw. You know, he'll lose their support. Unfortunately, that is not how this kind of politics works. It's not a politics of material benefit. Um. It's a politics of loyalty. Fascism is about loyalty and power. It replaces material interests. It replaces truth and reality by loyalty and power. Uh, as Arendt says, the fa- fascists resemble mafia bosses. They stock their administrations with with family members and and. Uh, and people from their businesses because of loyalty and that's consistent so i don't look at people who do that and say they're being inconsistent i say no good you're being consistent because loyalty is your thing so uh so uh, so what you what what in that chapter i believe in him klemper is talking about how much the psychological wages of germanness tied tied germans to hitler even well beyond the point at which they should have april 1945 the red army is in the gates of berlin and klemper is trudging through the woods with a soldier missing an arm and he says to the soldier i guess it's time to give up and the soldier says what do you mean hitler's got them trapped and klemper says what what this soldier's a young man he's lost his arm you know what is he and klemper says uh And the soldier says, yeah, it's Hitler's birthday is coming up. And Hitler just meant to suck the Red Army in and trap them. Uh, He's never lied to us yet. And Klemper says he'd been lying consistently year after year after year after year. I mean, literally, people would till the last moment. I mean, I've spent years of my life in Germany and I've met people who still believe in him. So uh, so, you know, the bond of loyalty. What fascist politics tries to do is it tries to break down any of your connection to your material interests and say, well, what you have is you have your national identity, your ethnic identity, and your bond with a leader. And that's why, and, and that bond is so powerful and so meaningful to people that they will, you know, they will just to see that they will like, it will last through great trial and tribulation. It will last you certainly the loss of their material interest and if you look at countries that suffer from fascist politics um i would say russia right now is one uh you can see that the leader becomes very popular even as people's economic situation becomes worse so you can't like wait around for oh you know when their health insurance gets taken away they'll no it doesn't work like that i mean these are, you know, Erdogan in Turkey. I mean, these are leaders who win elections, and they win elections by a politics of loyalty. They win elections by lying. Um, so, so, uh, so. Uh, I'll talk for five more minutes, uh, and then uh, and then take questions. So I, I'm going through. So what I do in my book is I give you a template. I give you a template of of signs. Um, I used to be, I am an analytic philosopher, but I'm not, uh, that's one of the many things I am. Um, uh, but I sort of like militantly did not pay attention to the world um, uh, as my, my, my stepmother and my father would always remind me. Um, and uh, so until uh, birtherism. Uh, so my first New York Times piece in 2011 was about birtherism because I had read enough Rent to realize that was weird. That shouldn't happen in a democracy. And I recognize the trap. The trap is something that's familiar from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In my family, both my parents are Holocaust survivors. Uh, my, my mother and father, two of my three parents are Holocaust survivors. Um, and, uh, and so obviously, Protocols of the Elders of Zion is something you talk about in, when you're very young <laughs> and uh, some advantages. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, so this trap of, you know, Hitler said... The, the lying press, the press is owned by the Jews, and you can tell because they never talk about the press being owned by the Jews. So that's a trap. That's a familiar trap, very familiar. I recognized it immediately. I immediately was like, maybe I should write something not on the left parentheses. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so in 2011, I wrote my first New York Times piece about that. Um, the trap always works like this. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, when he came to political consciousness, he went on an interview in Fox News and he said, CNN is controlled by the leftists and Obama. You can tell because they're not talking about birtherism. That's the same move that was made in the 30s. The Plaza, the mainstream press, you know, they're controlled by the Jews because they don't say they're controlled by the Jews. The Law and Justice Party in uh, in poland the hilariously misnamed law and justice party comes to power uh in 2015 uh in a country that had been whose economic whose gdp had been going up civic platforms done very well uh so it wasn't economic anxiety uh it's not economic anxiety in bavaria either um uh, but they came they they did this move too i i'm emphasizing this because comet pizza is right here uh, so I can't not talk about the conspiracy theories as a sign so uh so uh so what pis did what law and justice did is there was a Smolensk disaster when which was admittedly horrific when a plane carrying all of Poland's uh political leaders and business leaders and military leaders crashed and and and, and everyone was killed and there were about t- t- between twenty and twenty five conspiracy theories about that crash it was pilot error it was pilot error but admittedly it was hard to believe it was pilot error um so so law and justice rode that to power you know it was all about the conspiracy and it was the communists and it was uh there are no communists in poland but it was the con- just like there were no com- very no communists very few communists in the american south but the kkk still acted like there were um It was the communists it was the russians it was the liberals who were who were hiding hiding the real facts of who brought that plane down and you could tell that the newspapers were owned by the people who did it because they didn't report on it um and when i saw birtherism i was like oh yeah that's familiar um and conspiracy theories work in a weird way and i'll end with this only in deference to comet pizza um conspiracy theories function. They function to break down the epistemological spaces. They function to break down. To, they're, they're simple narratives that make sense of, of panic, fear, uh, in Poland's case, sadness and loss, um, paranoia. Uh, they're not meant to be taken at face value. So Edgar Madison Welch, when he walks in uh, so this is a point that my colleague at uconn michael lynch had made uh which i think is very powerful he pointed out that when edgar madison welch walked in uh w- and and fired three shots in that restaurant um three or four shots i'm not exactly sure how many uh, uh he was acting rationally right if you thought that the democratic party was running a child sex ring in the basement of comet pizza by all means go and free the child the children But he was immediately denounced by Alex Jones and everybody else as a spy for the Democratic Party. So Michael Lynch makes this point to point out conspiracy theories, you're doing the wrong thing if you believe them. They're just supposed to make you, you know, hate the target more. They're just supposed to make you hate the target more. They're not supposed to be believed like that. So what I do in my book is I give you 10 properties of fascist politics. The book is not about fascist government. I'm not saying, you know, you could, it's about uh, fascism, and, and, and the difference between fascist government and fascist politics is tricky anyway, because fascism is about power. So fascism is a method to come to power. People are always like, well, do you really believe that, that does, do, 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 do such and such people like President Trump, do, do they really believe, you really believe he believes the things that other fascist movements, uh, uh, Believe, uh, and my response is it doesn't matter because fascism isn't about belief; it's about power. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Like, this first hit me when I was reading Richard Grunberger's 1975 work on uh, th- thanks. Th- on thanks to my father's library, I have a rich collection of history, sociology, philosophy, and psychology of the Nazis. So uh, and much else. Uh, but uh, but uh, he says many people think of the nazis as morally pure anti-semites they were devoted you know devoted to killing jews and definitely believed in it and got up and were very neat and but actually a lot of them were just thugs they were just mafia gangsters and they didn't care about killing jews they cared about money they cared about jewish art and property but they were doing the devoted anti-semitism thing they didn't care about it. What they cared about was the profits they got from it, and that's, I think, what we need to focus on when we think about fascism. It's a tactic. It's a way to delude us, to seize power, and retain power, um, and uh, and um, and it has its uh, lengthy history uh, in our own country. Okay, thank you. Right, he did. He he started his campaign in the uh, in that in that county for the Mississippi. Missis- what what was it? Philadelphia, Philadelphia Mississippi. Right. The, I forgot the name of the county fair. Um, but uh, but where uh, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were near where Schwerner, Schwerner Cheney, and, and certainly we have the welfare queen trope that you know the racial coding. Um. Now I think that. One thing you get, so you have these uh, really tripling down on uh, on America's racial history uh, on on American racism in that camp in those campaigns. You have militarism, uh, and you have uh, and you have the uh, and you have the aspect um, and you have something that is last chapter of my book, uh, social Darwinism, uh, which is connected in certain ways to economic libertarianism. Um, Although it's inconsistent in various ways. But the idea is, I talk about Hitler's speech to the industrialists, uh, uh, fascists talk about winners and losers, makers and takers. Uh, It's all about who wins has value, who loses has no value, so that whole way of going. On the other hand, um, uh, Reagan does not explicitly you know, fascists are harshly anti-democratic. You don't have the enemy of the state. You you have, you. okay, to go on the Reagan. I mean, look, there's going to be a lot of overlaps between social conservative, between various forms of conservatism and fascist politics. But we can't condemn everybody. We can't say it's a spectrum. Fascist politics is a spectrum. And, and our familiar conservatives are going to be on that spectrum, just like, just like, Bernie Sanders is going to be on the spectrum to something much more extreme. I mean, he's on the spectrum to Denmark. But yeah, there are certain things he says that are going to be on the spectrum to bad leftist authoritarianism. So there is this spectrum. And uh, and I don't mean to. And we have in a, in a liberal democracy, uh, we have to have social conservatives. We have to have libertarians. We have to have uh, we have to have progressives and socialists. We have to have this spectrum. and We're going to have this spectrum. But what happens when you get something really worrisome, which I don't think you quite had, you you didn't have with Reagan, is when you have these different things, I mean, look at Reagan on immigration, for instance. I mean, he isn't demagoguing on immigration. He isn't, uh, when you have these overlaps, when you have, you know, social conservatives, business corporate elites, um, libertarians, all coming together, and nationalists coming together and saying, let's have a group, you know, A constellation and we might disagree on certain things but let's unify and then you can get fascist constellations there but I I think you know I I think Reagan had elements that are there like but also we have to remember that lots of just like you know you wouldn't want to say that oh uh, very socially progressive policies just because they do that in communist countries that's communist so I I wouldn't want to paint Reagan as as engaging in fascist politics he's not harshly anti-democratic in the way that you you find with um
0: just to respond really quickly, I guess my my thing was the militarism and really the Absolutely. dangerous militarism dangerous during his the empire his, yeah really yeah. the building of the empire and the right. the really the strong anti uh, the strong racist tone of things it really right
1: and the, the and the and and those are overlaps and and I think uh, this analogy now is you don't find President Trump actually being as empire oriented. Um, I mean, it's tricky there. People will say, I think now people use fascist politics. They used to use it in in the '30s. It was used to mobilize people for war. Now it's used to demobilize people. <laughs> um, so it's a tech, It's a set of techniques, and you know, and it overlaps with techniques, and 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 you know, and people use some of them. Uh, uh, you know, it, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum, and and. Uh,
2: I want to thank you. I think this is a very important discussion. And uh, I'm from the Caribbean, grew up in the Netherlands, and I spent a, quite a significant amount of my time there in a different type of Netherlands than it has become, sadly enough, right? When I was in the Netherlands, if you had told him that... Um,
1: caret builders.
2: I mean, these guys would be 20%, 30% of the population. Literally, people would lock you up and put you in a psychiatric institution and say, you're thinking too much. You literally kind of lost it, you know? This is not what the Netherlands is about. We are, you know, civilized, good, decent people. Although you know they have a very horrific, they have changed. a very horrific history of colonialism, which is not talked about at home. But the issue is a few questions, uh, and these questions I think uh, are provoked by um, w- w- some of the things you said. I think you onto something quite profound when you said that what we are dealing with now is a demobilized, depoliticized, and deideologized. population and populations, not only in America. See, if this was only happening in the United States, okay, okay, but I'm so-called French Dutch, I mean, between brackets, right? (laughs) I'm from the Caribbean, but so-called French Dutch. Um, This France, right? The last elections, right? People were panicked that Marine Le Pen walks into the White House, right? And we know if she walks there, what is going to happen? She's not, she made it very clear. For my, you know, one of the big problems I see is that in, in Europe, potentially, the Muslims become the new Jews.
1: Absolutely, you know the yep.
2: Muslims become the new Jews, right? Uh, but the issue that that I want to deal with here is is a more profound issue that this type of fascism is indeed to mobilize and demobilize. Right. In essence, what you're in Habermas talks about a legitimacy crisis of the West, <laughs> right? And the big problem is when you have a legitimacy crisis not taking place on one level alone, right? Economic, social, political, legal, right, moral, ethical, domestic, international, on all different levels, the White West and not is facing crisis and crisis and crisis that are feeding back in and creating problems. Another problem that you have in the West, and I think this is a major problem, and I didn't think you touched on it, is that if you look at the populations here, right? Populations that are so-called democratic, you know? Uh, I mean, I, and I'm glad you began claiming that the democracy here was never much of anything at all. It was much more a joke to fool people than, than, than democracy. The issue is that in these populations a long time, Twenty to thirty percent of the population remain quite fanatically right, right. Even look, look what happened with the Communist Party in France, right? The Communists moved move over to the fascists. They did. Right?
1: They, did. They, they literally That's move exactly over right. from one right.
2: uh, authoritarianism to the another yep. one, right? Brown talks about this. T- t- tell you how uh, how strong the, the Communist uh, identity of brotherhood and sisterhood of right. people and yep. stuff like that. So, I mean, how do you see? Um, and the big problem that you face is that often these fascistic parties tend to be the most mobilized part of the population. Right. Right. While they the, show up. While, right. the, while, yeah. the, while, the, while the majority of the population, although somewhat against, right. I mean, Hitler never got the majority. He always right. got 40%. But, but they are highly mobilized. And you, you only need 40%. You only need a small, organized yeah. minority to create half of the society. Who everyone else is scared of. When everybody scared So how do you see, um, and do you see in a way, in the West at this point in time, really, since the, the average trade unions are gone, the Socialist and Communist Party are away. And very few intellectuals and academics are really, really speaking out, are really standing up here and saying, wait a minute here, guys, right? You people in the Western are not. You white people in the Western are not, right? I, I'm saying this kind of provocative because part of, you know. I'm, no, you're I'm, absolutely. I'm mostly right. European. I'm most right, of the European right. descent. No, you're absolutely right. white people. But the issue yeah. is you white people in the not be very careful what you're doing, right? Yeah. Because you are facing a massive influx of black and brown people here because of global warming. What do you do when you, look across, the, when you look across the Mediterranean, 50, 60 million uh, right. Africans are about to come? Genocide? You fall back to the default so, so, so position of genocide?
1: Let, let me so say, let me hear what you got to say. Yeah, so the, uh, let me just say one quick thing. I'm going to get another question. There's a great series of points that you raise. The climate change point, Timothy Snyder talks about that at the end of Black Earth. He warns that that's our big, and I, I, I talk about that in my book uh, as well, picking up on Tim's on Snyder's points um, that you know climate change is going to lead to immigration crises that you know crises, uh, immig- to massive immigration that we're going to have to deal with. But let me say something about the point of oh you know the majority minority point that oh soon the country's going to be majority minority. President Trump and his campaign always emphasized that. You know, uh, my colleague, Jen Richardson, the great social psychologist, she she has done this experiment. She's done a number of experiments on the on this. She shows she when you get she presents white Americans with three, con, three, quest, three different groups of white Americans. The first, she says, uh, in 2042, the Netherlands will become majority minority. The second group, she says, in 2042, the United States will become majority senior citizen. And the third group, she says, in 2042, the United States will become majority-minority. And then she asks them a series of political questions. The first two groups don't change their mind. They, 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 their politics doesn't change. She gets a test of them before, of what their political leanings are. <clears throat> the third group of white Americans that's presented with the information that the United States is going to become majority-minority becomes, more, becomes ag- more against affirmative action more against the, uh, for, uh, immigration. And interestingly, because Jen Richardson is a genius, she added this, they become mo- much more in favor of increased defense spending. Mm. So so that, oh, we're going to become a majority-minority, it it enables right-wing politics or a certain kind of politics. Maybe not right-wing, but that. Could you talk a little
3: bit more about uh, what appears to be increased white anxiety and white feelings of white victimization and how does how do and talk a little bit about Trump's role. Um, is he a symptom of something that's going to continue after him or what happens to fascist movements when leaders disappear?
1: Uh, you know, that's, 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 they always have succession crises, but I, but I, you know, uh, we have more Trumps. So, um, there, so, uh, But uh, he is an expert, a real skilled expert at milking white anxiety. Um, there was that quote that he, uh, that he, and, and the psychological wages of whiteness point, like, remember that thing he said? I remember, I don't remember when he said it, but, you know, he said something about poor white trash and some, someone said, what is that? And he said, like me, except poor. Um, so that uh, connects, he's, I have great respect for his rhetorical political ability. Uh, we're always, it, we always have this nascent, the dominant group, I mean, think of the men 's rights movement. <laughs> I mean, is there any more aggrieved group on earth than men when their representation in the Senate goes from ninety eight to like eighty three or whatever seventy five you know uh, you know, just look at how men act <laughs> and you know and you know and that's what 's going on, and that's what happens it's all look at France, the example of France is a good example you know uh the the aggrieved, uh, the, you know, we're losing our culture, we're losing our, um, so that's a big, one chapter in my book is called Victimhood. And it's all about this. It's a whole chapter just about this.
3: Could you, um, would, would you agree that an important benchmark for authoritarianism in this country might have its uh, roots in Eisenhower's farewell address in 1960, I guess, uh, in which the leading general in the world representing the most strongest country in the world, talk, spoke about this fear. And then as, subsequent to that, you had three of our foremost civil rights leaders slain under dubious circumstances, the official narrative, which only 30, 30% of Americans believe. And then you had this Vietnam War, and there were protests all over the country. There were, there were cities burning. And there were people killed at Kent state. And now we have multiple wars and nobody says a word.
1: So, right.
3: how, how, what's your take on that? So,
1: I have a lot in my book on Nixon. So, I'm when I talk give talks on that. People, because Nixon is a model for Trump, President Trump, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, law and order politics. You know, uh, uh, Nixon mis- is mis- misrep. Uh, uh, you know, there's a whole protests misrepresented as riots. Think of Baltimore, 2015. So, I talk in my book about how. Um, Fox News described, uses the word riot, used the word riot, seven out of every 1,000 words in describing Baltimore, what happened in Baltimore, and protests only two words out of 1,000. CNN used them roughly equally, around three and a half words per 1,000, riot and protest. And MSNBC used riot two words out of 1,000 and protest almost four words out of 1,000 to describe Baltimore. So this radical partisan difference in descriptions of political protest. The 60s, you really saw that. You know, so much so that someone of my age, I've been 36 for 12 years, uh, is uh, I can't even say Detroit protests. 'Cause it doesn't come out of my mouth, because I was raised in schools that just taught me Detroit riots. You know, but then you, you have Catherine Bigelow's movie, then you realize the actual history, they were protests. And, you know, you just focused on like one, you know, a few people doing bad things and you paint them a certain way. So the sixties, Nixon's campaign, you know, again, my book's not about fascist government, it's about fascist politics. I think you see with Nixon a lot of use of fascist politics and i'm sure you can go back because as i've been saying this is us it's not them
3: do, do you think the history of the, the the take on lyndon johnson lyndon johnson might get a a a more uh critical view because he kind of laid the groundwork for nixon and and his involvement in the war his refusal to get out of it the pressures that kept him in it.
1: So, so in 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 uh, in a week, in on October twelfth at Harvard Bookstore, I'll be in discussion with Elizabeth Hinton, who's who has written the greatest book about the domestic policies of 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 Johnson and uh, and Nixon uh, from the War on Poverty, the War on Crime, the making of mass incarceration in America, and that's about the domestic policies. So it's a different point. You're asking about the foreign policy, but I think on domestic policy, you know. There are some issues with Johnson that lead to Nixon as well. I mean, John. A lot of Johnson's projects in the uh, in uh, in cities were uh, with minority populations were sort of like, "Here's how to learn to pull up. Here's how to act like someone with a job or something like that," rather than providing people jobs. (laughs) You know, which is like. You know, Trump is, was smart. You know, could you imagine Trump going to like rural Michigan and be, being like, I'm going to teach you how to act like bankers? <laughs> no, he wasn't doing that. Um, so. Uh, so. Right. So. So I, Nixon, I talk. So those are interesting questions in the Hinton book, I think, talks about the hints of Nixon and Johnson while giving him credit for certain things. So, um, so first I just want to say thank
0: you for coming to talk tonight, it was really interesting. Um, and um, so my question is, or first I'll just say, um, you mentioned that a key a tactic of fascists is to caricature the center left as being communists. Yeah. Um, um, but I feel like, or it seemed to me that um, you made that same mistake when you talked about how, um, when you talked about opposition to unions. Um, because that seems like a pretty mainstream right um, view to be opposed to unions.
1: Right. I and- didn't mean to I, I don't mean to say that each. So there's 10 different aspects to fascism. Each one of those aspects is going to be familiar from ordinary conservative politics. OK. It's the combination. But it just didn't occur to me that opposition to labor unions is a uniform feature of all fascism. I I, I learned that in doing the research for my book. Um, so, no, you can have good, sound economic reasons, you know, there are good, for each of these things, you know, for each of these properties, uh, for, you can be, uh, I mean, some of the hierarchy, some of the chapters about racial hierarchies, okay, that's pretty fascist, But, uh, but, you know, as I say in my book, economic libertarianism overlaps with fascism on social Darwinism, like winners have value, losers don't, but they're different in other ways, like, a consistent libertarian will never generalize to groups and say, you know, white people have more value than non-whites because they work harder and win more And the, you know, so, so there are these overlaps and, you know, I just think it so screams out from you from the literature. It's just universal. This, you know, you go to Portugal and you go to their museum in Lisbon, and they talk about the attack of the labor unions and, you know, it's so universal that you it has to be mentioned. But, of course, you can criticize labor unions and not be a factor. Yeah. Thank you. And for each of these. Thank you. Where are your parents? Uh, well, my stepmother is here. <laughs> and she helped a lot with the book. She gave me... She gave me, my brother-in-law is, is there. <laughs> uh, well, so. you
4: are profound, and you are brilliant, and I oh. think your parents, your family, should and friends should be very, very proud of you. Oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm well-read on Reconstruction, but the issue that you spoke about with respect to uh, anti-unions yeah. and uh, uh, wealthy whites in the North coming down, that... I have not read about and do not know about. I knew, you know, certainly with Rutherford putting the nail in the casket and, uh, you know, wanting to appease the South and pulling the troops out so that he could win the election. I want you to talk a little bit more about uh, the North and, uh, you know, coming against uh, the the labor unions. And uh, I wanted to get your take on what happened in Charleston with the massacre at... um, uh, you know, uh, Mother Emanuel Church, as well as what happened in Charlottesville. Because after listening to you, you do see a theme. And when, you know, Trump co- you know, could say the most horrible thing about McCain, I prefer winners and people yeah, who exactly. don't get, uh, yeah. you know, uh, that. Uh, oh,
1: uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so uh, I've been spending more time lately for my sins with former members of, Nazi parties, and uh I mean, I was uh, so a friend of mine is Tony McClear, the director of um life, executive director of Life after Hate. He spent twenty or so years as a as a Nazi and um b- remarkable man. and he's very clear that the long, I mean, I think we all know this from David Duke. the long term goal of the American Nazi party was to to be respectable, and for that, they had to have people who are not respectable. So Tony McClear said at one talk, I one symposium we were at together, he said, uh, the first time I was on Montel Williams, I was a skinhead with combat boots and tattoos. The second time I wore a suit. Um, and he explains that you need the killers, the radicals out there to say, that's not us. You're seeing this all over Europe now. You know, the Austrian Kurtz, Sebastian Kurtz, all the the, what happens is that the right wing parties are like, we're not not white supremacists. The white supremacists are the ones actually killing people, the ones marching on the streets. We're respectable. We're in government. We're in. Mm -hmm. And but they need each other. So the in order for the for the people in power who are pushing white supremacy to plausibly deny that they're white supremacists, they need Charlottesvilles because they need to say, no, no, those are white supremacists. And Tony McClear can explain that this has long been the strategy, all, uh, of of the American Nazi Party. And it's and and uh, David Black, the former the the son of the um, the Stormfront founder, uh, is also very clear about this. He's like um, he says. What we hear from our leadership is the kind of things that we always, he said, our target audience is always the person who said, I'm not a racist, but dot, dot, dot. So you need, you need the Charlottesvilles and the, the horror of Charleston, which is unspeakable horror of Charleston, um, because those provide plausible deniability to white supremacy and power.
4: And and we know those of us who study history and, and uh, who uh, are of uh, a woman of color as I am, and a descendant of people who were enslaved both on mater- maternal side. We always knew in the communities, and certainly in the South, when people when the KKK took off those hoods, they were your local doctor, your po- your sheriff, your policeman, your store owners. Uh, you know, not all of them, but these were the respectable people, and it was the hood that allowed them to, 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 you know, to really crucify and, you know, and hang people. And, uh,
1: so we, I mean, the wisdom of the black American tradition guides me in my book. I mean, uh, Ida B. Wells. Oh, uh, absolutely. The, the, that's the lynching, Angela Davis. Yes. Um, Du Bois, obviously I probably over yes. Du Bois today. Yes. I'm sorry for that. No, um, that's okay. But, but it's, it's, he earned it. He earned it. right yes. exactly. Um, so, so, uh, because that those it's that literature that you get the insight into the form fascism takes here. And so someone from like me who's from Europe, the certain the sort of particular uh, uh, masks fascism wears here, that's something you really need the Black American mm-hmm. literature to understand.
4: Mm-hmm. But thank you for your work. And um, thank thanks. your parents.
1: <laughs> and my brother, <laughs> my father. <laughs> um, <clears throat>
2: um, earlier this year, I read another book by um, a psychologist named Steven Pinker called *Enlightenment it's Now*. Right, it's
1: staring me in the face right over there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and numbers, uh, he, in,
2: in the book, he argues that uh, the world is getting better and better, and. Uh, we're, this is the best time to be alive, the best time to be born, um, and he extols the virtues of of the future and so i I want to you know ask you uh, what, what you feel about that how what 's your uh, response to that, and are you optimistic about the future i mean you 're talking about possible fascism in this country
1: so let me quote my my father 's book The Technological Conscience, where he says um, uh, pessimism is very much the humanistic view. He says, I am a pessimist. Pessimism is very much the humanistic view. Um, so, uh, so <laughs> uh, uh, that's just to say that I think that uh, I think Pinker, I mean, we could go on about Pinker. I'm not going to. Uh, I think that when you count, you know, Cesare already does a takedown of Pinker um, uh, a, a long time in, um, in uh, uh, Femi. Cisair, what's the Cesare book? I'm just blanking. Discourse and well, discourse on colonialism. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, so and discourse on colonialism, where he's like, you know, you count, uh, you tell us about the diseases you've cured. You tell us about the, you know, the new food that we access from Europe. And yet, what about the religion you destroyed? What about, you know, the traditions you eliminated? What about the ways of life you laid waste to? Can you count those? You know, so Pinker is just like, no, it only matters if you can count it. Dignity doesn't count. You can't count dignity. So you'll also find me criticizing P- Pinker in recent years. Pinker is very, has a, Pinker is not alt-right himself, but Pinker does have a lot of alt-right fans. If you look at Pinker's views about the IQ debate, there are probably, I mean, he has, you'll find some stuff on Pinker there. Um, you know, this idea of we have to face you know, we have to face the facts of difference, nature. I mean, I think he's right that, you know, I'm not for banning discussions, but the fascination that he has with the IQ debate is something that I think is kind of worrisome. Um, So, and I'm worried about the sort of technocratic way of measuring human value. That said, in any country that had the civil rights movement, and I mean, if I did had to do the civil rights movement, I definitely would have done it in Vermont. But they chose like Alabama and Mississippi. So given that, I feel quite safe in the United States. Ultimately, I feel optimistic because this is a country that did that. So the labor movement, you know, Jane Addams.
5: I just wanted to make a, 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 two brief comments. One about giving value to things. I mean, if we really just take a quick scan of history, going back to as far as we can go back, it seems like human life does not have a lot of value. It, it And just, just that's just a general comment. And if we look at capitalism and, and the globalization of everything and all these wars, and like you said, There's two wars going on. And I've said this to myself. Why is no one talking about our troops that we still have in Afghanistan and Iraq and and these places? And they're still getting blown to pieces. And I know because my first job out of college, I worked at the VA hospital in the 70s when the guys were first coming back from Vietnam. Um, So that's just what I wanted to say about the value of human life. Now, on a lighter side. I would like to say what you um what you said about Du Bois and then you said about um the new push for black studies in colleges and that it was gonna replace Shakespeare.
1: Yeah. I yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. I know it, it was
5: just it was just a joke. But I just wanted to, to, to play on that because it, from my experience and having done black studies and everything else, um, there's a lot of credit and study given to Shakespeare, people who- (laughs) Right, Elen
1: Locke, Du Bois, a little bit too much if you ask me. (laughs) Yeah,
5: and also I wanted to say that most of our uh, most appreciated African American actors studied Shakespeare to the hilt,
1: right, right, and, and there's do Robeson, the most, obviously. If you haven't yeah, had an yeah.
5: opportunity, do no. the
1: most excellent Shakespeare right, right. on stage. No, I mean, I mean that that is ultimately, you know, I mean, uh, the great Jeffrey Stewart Allen Locke biography talks about. I mean, Locke won the sort of literary prize at Harvard for for something on a ta- on Irish irish poetry and he gave a talk in a black church in cambridge saying look the irish created the greatest were were colonized and oppressed and their revenge was to create the greatest english language literature and poetry and he's obviously encouraging taking that as a uh speaking of paul dunlap i think it was also a lecture on dunlap right absolutely so right and of course du bois sort of takes that to extreme the extreme with the talented tenth um so i i don't mean to by the way pinker is a liberal pinker and i have family disputes ultimately he's a technocratic liberal of a certain kind i have family disputes with him but he's obviously um gen in some general sense uh, on my side but he's what but he's, he's all right <laughs> he's all right no the alt are certain aspects of pinker that the alt-right pick up on that you know the uh, the the stuff where which is a danger of the messaging so i'm not he's definitely not all right he's it's that you got to be careful i mean one should be sensitive to the messages that like pinker said uh recently i think it was in davos and a panel where he said you know the alt-right are really bright tech savvy people who come to college and realize there are certain topics that you're not allowed to talk about. And then they feel shocked and then they become alt-right. That's the kind of, I think that was an irresponsible comment. Of course he's on my side, but I just think that's an irresponsible comment. And of course that's a comment that makes some people, you know, that he does not agree with. Uh, it puts them in, in uh, so that's, 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 that's all I'm saying. Ultimately we can't have these family disputes between different stripes of liberals. Um, and so, I don't want to do that. Though I do want to say, I don't think that's why people become all right.
2: We are unfortunately out okay. of time for questions. Although, if you want to make a, a, a brief question,
1: if we make it really quick, then we can fit uh, it in. I don't, I don't
3: have a comment, it is a question, but uh, the question is for you to elaborate maybe we don't have time for any more elaboration, on anti-intellectualism, which was one of the ten, I guess, that you have, and you didn't no. really say much about it. And it's a case that I see certain parallels with the sort of the uh, w- with the le- left mm-hmm. uh, philosophies of, uh, of, I don't know, class warfare. And, uh, I mean, I th- it seems like Mao was an anti-intellectual yeah, in he, many respects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I, I think that um I I what you get in fascist ideology is uh is like the straightforward fascist ideology is about uh uh appealing to emotion not that there's some emotions can be perfectly rational as Martha Nussbaum among others as many philosophers would tell you but the idea is to cut off reasoning by you know fear panic and 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 just and then just replay and show your and, and then present yourself as like the solution. Uh, you got this very explicitly discussed, you know, in, in Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about, you know, propaganda should appeal to, you know, the, the least educated. So, you know, the idea that it's the least educated, you're, who's your, who your audience are, are taught, you know, essentially, that's what you want to appeal to. Bannon said, you know, we won on Locker Up, Build a Wall, you know, we won on that. Um, but there's a kind what what I talk about in the anti-intellectual chapter is this all across the world right now we're seeing in these con- the countries I discuss attacks on universities for being bastions of liberalism, feminism. Uh, European University of St. Petersburg was closed down because of gender studies. Uh, Central European University was, uh, was attacked because they're spreading liberalism. Um, so this kind of thing, when you find universities harshly targeted as bastions of leftism and, you know, now of course, sometimes they are, uh, not Yale, but uh, the, uh, the, uh, Yale's a great place. It's not that. Um, uh, but you know, uh, when you find this hysteria about the hysteria about communism being, uh, being directed at universities and the media, you know, uh, and fa- and now it takes the form of gender studies, panic about gender studies, because uh, uh, that's just like Masha Gessen's clear about that in her 2017 book, um, that gender studies just seems to be. And, and you know, Pat McCrory in North Carolina did that. He said, uh, we're not going to have this tax. Governor of North Carolina said that we're not going to have the taxpayers paying for gender studies or Swahili. Um, so uh, so the idea is, is. You know, so you target universities in your politics. Now, all authoritarians, tar- as you say, target universities in their politics because universities are places where young people protest against older people. <laughs> and so that's going to be something that, that um, as I get older, I recognize the wisdom of seeing that as a problem. But <laughs> yeah, right, thank you.